yesterday, but the previous week, I saw my first Santa Claus for the year. He was uh, down in the Shire, just south of the Captain Cook Bridge, the skinniest Santa Claus I think I've ever seen, and one quite uh, unusually wearing short pants. The retailers have already started preparing for Christmas, but it's a couple of months away yet, as you can think about it. However, two months' preparation for Christmas is nothing compared to God's preparation for Christmas. He prepared it before the foundation of the earth, which is a long time ago when you put it that way, and he prepared it for that moment when his son, the Word, would become flesh, when his son would become men. Now, man, and hundreds of years before it happened, he prepared his people by declaring it through his prophet Isaiah. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is Isaiah and the early chapters of Isaiah. You see, Isaiah was the one who wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And again, it was Isaiah who prophesied, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Over the next few weeks then, we're going to prepare for Christmas ourselves by looking at God's preparation via the prophet Isaiah. And we'll start with that prophecy by looking at chapter 1 today. You see, we start off in verse 1 about Isaiah himself. And we read about the man, his times... His vision, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, we don't know much at all about the man Isaiah. He was married. He had a couple of children with very strange names, as we'll see in coming weeks. There are some brief references to him in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, which fit in with what we know about him from our book, but we really don't know much about the man himself. But we do know about his times. He lived through the reign of four kings of Judah. And we know when they lived. Uzziah died in 740 BC, Jotham in 732, Ahaz 715, and Hezekiah died in 686 BC. That is, Isaiah started his prophecy in the year that King Uzziah died. We know that from chapter 6. And so Isaiah was, was prophesying from the time around 740 BC to 700 BC. And we know what happened in that period of time. Uzziah had a long and prosperous reign mainly because the big superpowers at the time, Assyria and Egypt, were weak. But at the end of his time, when Isaiah started prophesying, trouble was brewing. Assyria was growing in power and expansion so that the little nations like Israel and Judah were threatened. Let's look at two maps just to get our mind back into the picture of the ancient world that we have. And these two maps, firstly, you see where the nations were. The big empires were Assyria and Egypt. They were the superpowers of the ancient world in the 8th century BC. With Judah, 
and Jerusalem and Israel, really kind of halfway between them. So if there's going to be a fight between Assyria and Egypt, Israel's a bad place to live because you're going to be the border between these great world empires. Remember, at this time, Judah and Israel had split. They'd split after King Solomon's reign. Ten northern tribes became the state of Israel. Two southern tribes became the state of Judah. They they were not alone in Palestine. They had neighbours like the Philistines, Moab, Edom, and especially a little place which we have called Aram, but was what we would call Syria. Now, you've got to remember the difference here. It's one of those, just, one of those tricks of life between Assyria and Syria. Assyria is a big world power. Syria is a little power. Assyria is where modern Iraq is. Syria is where modern Syria is. Sometimes called Aram, sometimes called... It's complicated, isn't it? It's not really complicated. If you were living at the time, it's like Port Jackson and Sydney Harbour. Uh, Those of us who are locals know that it's the same place, really, but we've got different names for it, and that's the character of the place. Aram, Syria, little neighbour of Israel. Assyria, huge world empire that is expanding at this time. In Isaiah's time, Assyria's expansion into Palestine destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes were lost. They're called the lost tribes of Israel and they didn't turn up in America and haven't been found by, by the, uh, the Mormons. That the future president of America may believe such a thing is a great worry. That Assyria, it destroyed the ten northern tribes. The two southern tribes, Judah continued. But in 701 BC, 20 years later, they also were threatened. The city of Jerusalem was besieged and all the villages of Judah were flattened. So in one generation, Isaiah's generation, the prosperous kingdom of Israel was destroyed and that of Judah was decimated. For Isaiah, this destruction of God's people was his vision of God's action in the world. He saw clearly Judah's sinful willfulness, their refusal to live as God's people, God's way, and therefore God's judgment upon them and his punishment of them and the inevitable suffering that would come from that punishment. However, he also saw that Jerusalem was God's city. Judah was God's nation. And so one day, Judah and Jerusalem would be the centre of God's kingdom and all the nations would pay tribute to them when God's king would finally reign. So Isaiah, in summary, Isaiah is saying a double message. In his own times, he sees sinfulness, judgment and punishment, suffering and destruction while seeing in God's time vindication, salvation and world rule of God's kingdom. And you have these two messages which seem contradictory to each other, two messages going out at the same time from Isaiah. Some verses, everything is black and bleak and going to be destroyed. And a few verses, everything's going to be bigger and better than you ever imagined. And it swings from one to the other and reading it can be a little tricky when you see this. But in his own time, 
destruction at the hand of God. In God's good time, salvation to the whole world. Jerusalem, he sees, Jerusalem is like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment on sinfulness was well known to these people because centuries before, God destroyed and flattened Sodom and Gomorrah in a single event. And so these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, stood as the symbol of God's judgment on wickedness. Jerusalem and Judah were God's children. As God calls them in verse 2, my people, he calls them there at the end of verse 3. But though they've been raised up by God, they've become rebellious children in verse 2. A sinful nation, as he calls them in verse 4. They've rebelled like no animal. An animal knows its master. We prize children above animals, and yet animals don't hate, don't spurn, don't reject, don't rebel against their masters, as children sometimes so sadly and tragically do against their parents. So God points out how devastated the region had become under his judgment because of their rebellion against him. Look at verses 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, it's overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a, a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. For that's what it was. By 700, everything had been flattened, except for Jerusalem, sitting up on its hill called Zion. The only thing left standing is Zion, the city hill upon which Jerusalem was built. It's the only difference between the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of Judah. Jerusalem was left. So verse 9, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have become, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All this is because Judah had been following the religion of Sodom and Gomorrah. The religion that practices what God hates. So in verse 10, God addresses the leaders of Jerusalem as if they're the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that is really an insult in the extreme. And it attacks their superfluous, meaningless, burdensome religious rituals that God hates and detests so much. Pick it up, verse 11, at the bottom of the page there. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or, or of the goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. These practices, friends, were not the practices of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were the practices of Judah. They were the practices that God said they should be doing. They weren't foreign practices, but the problem was it was real, that they weren't real in their religion. See, the problem wasn't that they had the wrong religious practices, but that they practiced their own religion wrongly. 
God didn't want sacrifices, but obedience. Not religious rituals, but changed hearts. Verse 13 captures it. You see right at the end there? I cannot endure, says God, iniquity and solemn assemblies. Of course, this is our problem, isn't it? It's much easier to turn up to a solemn assembly, like today, than it is to deal with iniquity in our own hearts. And it's so easy to think that, well, I've done the right thing, I've gone to the temple, I've been to the sacrifices, when in fact you haven't done anything like the right thing, you've done the wrong thing by continuing in your iniquity. To this day, people still don't understand that God doesn't want religious liturgy or but religious reality of living God doesn't require buildings, priests, dressing in special robes, following special routines, saying special words and incantations, crossing ourselves, genuflecting. It's, it's not what God wants. If our lives are not right with God... If our lives are not right with our neighbour, living by justice and mercy with them, it's all worse than irrelevant, our religious practices. It's actually what God hates, the hypocrisy that it involves. This religiosity is when God will not listen to the people's prayers. Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. When religious people forget truth, justice, mercy, righteousness, God will not listen to their prayers. God will not listen to our prayers. Remember what James wrote in the New Testament? If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God doesn't want religious ceremony. God does want religious reality. But look at the astonishing offer in verse 18. Lovely verse, verse 18. Come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's an astonishing offer, isn't it? He offers his sinful and rebellious people forgiveness and mercy and washing and purity. He will wash them from scarlet and crimson to be as white as snow and wool. Though not without justice, because notice verses 19 and 20, he promises them the reward and punishment of justice, but he goes on, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel... Well, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't verse 18 wonderful, though? I mean, 
I'd like to tell you to mark it in your Bibles, but the trouble is they're cathedral Bibles, so please don't. But if you've got your own here, you go for it. This is the verse to highlight. This is a verse for a memory verse. If ever there's a memory verse, verse 18 is a ripper memory verse, isn't it? It's just one of those ones to mark. It's beautiful. What a promise. What a result. What a God we have to turn the crimson lives of our rebellious sinfulness into the washed lives, white as snow. That's a terrific promise from God. For God's plans were to see his city move from the harlot she was to the faithful city that she was supposed to be. I'm up to chapter 1, verse 21. The history of Jerusalem up to this point had been the reverse. It had gone from the faithful city to become the harlot. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's course does not come to them. Cities uh, often fall into moral disrepute over time. You see it in our fair city of Sydney, chasing the mighty dollar at all costs. The government, corrupted by gambling. We hold the world record for poker machines. We have a casino that sends out buses to take poor people on pension days into the city free of charge, dropped off just at the casino. Not caring for widows, not caring for the child, not caring for the poor. We see the greed and prostitution of this city and the corruption and violence, the corruption of our government and the violence in our streets, the suffering of the poor, the widows and the children. There is Sydney. When we became a nation of Australia at the beginning of the 19th century, we had such bright hopes for the future. You see it if you ever go down to Centennial Park at the Federation Pavilion, where Bernard O'Dowd's poem of 1901 is written around the, above the pillars. You can't see it in that photo, but go down there and have a look. And he asks of the future, the future of our nation, whether we would be a domain of mammon or millennial Eden. What's our future? Uh, old-fashioned word, domain, spelt there, but it's domain, don't worry, that's how he wrote it. The poets are poets, you know. You have to check the dictionary, don't you, just to find out. He could have used domain, it would have worked just as well, but domesny looks better, doesn't it? But there's the question he puts before the nation at its foundation. Are we going to be a domain for mammon to infest? Or does millennial Eden lie just beneath the surface of this mighty nation? this beautiful city. Well, a hundred years later, we all know mammon has totally infested our society and our city, and Eden is not to be seen here. But there were better hopes for Jerusalem than there were for Sydney. For Jerusalem was the city of God. Sydney was an open prison for British uh, criminals. But Jerusalem was set up as the city of God with the temple of God and the palace of God's king. So God's actions 
flow out to protect his own city even while he's punishing his own city. It was because in verse 21 to 23 that Jerusalem had become a whore and was not living as God's people ought to that we see verse 24 starting with the word therefore. Therefore, the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Notice how the titles mount. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, in case you haven't picked it up yet, he will act against his enemies, especially inside Judah amongst his own people. For he hates not just the sin, but also the sinner. So his enemies will be attacked. He will be avenged. His city will be purified. Excuse me. I said excuse me for the people who listen on tape because I can't turn that tape recorder off. They're just going to get a cough. One of my friends nearly killed himself in England listening to an Australian preacher who coughed right into a microphone. He was in a car travelling on a motorway. He said he changed three lanes uh, at the shock of the cough coming out the loudspeaker. Dick Lucas listening to, to Broughton Knox. So, hello to all people listening on, the, uh, on their radios now. Keep your eyes on the road. Now, for the rest of us who are here, God will be avenged. His city will be purified. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy and I'll restore your judges as a first and your counsellors at the beginning. And afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. It was created to be the faithful city. It had become a harlot. But he's going to turn the harlot back into the city of righteousness and the city that is the faithful city. So his plan is the restoration of the harlot city into the faithful city. And the effects of this restoration are seen in verses 27-28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Rebels and sinners will be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And when this happens, something more happens. Jerusalem will become the centre of the world, as it should be. And so you get this wonderful passage, chapter 2, this marvellous, beautiful passage. Look at verse 3 and 4. And many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The picture of world peace that we all so long and desire comes when God rules, not the United Nations and not Australia on the Security Council, as if a corrupt country like ours could bring peace to the world. But God rules. And when God rules out of Jerusalem, his word will go forth to all the nations and the nations will flood in to live his way. So here's the opening chapter of Isaiah. 
But what's it got to do with us today? What's the message of Isaiah today? We're not the Jews of Jerusalem of 700 BC, but the Jewish and Gentile Christians of the 21st century in Sydney. And we have visitors from Queensland, and welcome to you. But you're in Sydney now. But in saying that, we're already seeing something of the message of Isaiah fulfilled. For God's plans, prophesied there in chapter 2, were for the nations to come together to hear the word of God. Look at us right now. This is us. Here we are. People from all over the world and from many nations who have come into this multicultural city and who now name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and wish to hear his words. And Isaiah 1 reveals to us God's sovereign mercy. Sovereign because he rules the affairs of nations and of this world, but sovereign mercy because he has mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. Uh, that's the nature of mercy, friends. It can never be demanded or earned or warranted or deserved because mercy is always in the hand of the mercy giver. I have done the wrong thing. I can't demand mercy from the person I've wronged. I can only ask. I can only plead for mercy. And they can choose to be merciful or can choose to demand retribution. That's their choice, not mine. God's sovereign mercy is that he can have mercy on whomever he wills. So Isaiah shows us God's sovereign mercy plan in Israel's judgment and remnant. See, God raised up the Assyrians to bring about his plans of punishing his sinful nation, but sparing for himself a remnant of that nation in order to bring about his greater plans of salvation to the ends of the world. This is how Paul... Isaiah 1, for we read in Romans 9, 27, And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And again he says, And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Quoting Isaiah 1.9. See, if God did not have mercy on Jerusalem, sparing Jerusalem, saving Jerusalem, protecting Jerusalem, when Assyria destroyed everything else, if God had not protected Jerusalem, it would have become like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is nothing... There are no children of Sodom. There are no children of Gomorrah. You'll never meet a citizen of Sodom or a citizen of Gomorrah because there weren't any. They were totally wiped out. But God protected Jerusalem. And if he hadn't protected of Jerusalem, we wouldn't have had Christmas. We wouldn't have the coming of the Christ. 
We wouldn't have the death and forgiveness of sins. We wouldn't have his resurrection and the gift of new life. But God was preparing the way for Christmas. Uh, Not the religious Christmas of carols and candles, nor the irreligious Christmas of food and presents, and certainly not the idolatrous Christmas of Santa Claus and reindeers, but the reality of Christmas. He was saving and maintaining the remnant of the Jews for the arrival of his son. The son he had promised to the fathers of the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The son he had promised to Judah and his tribe and David and his household. The son who would come to be the saviour of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would bring such forgiveness of sins not only to Judah but to all nations that men and women all over the world will sing, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. He was saving the remnant in the midst of the Assyrian destruction for the sake of Christmas, for the sake of the coming of his son. And he was teaching us about faith and works. For we see the Jews acting on their own without God, practicing religion in the temple, with the temple services, in a way that God never wanted, in fact hated. Instead of faithful obedience to the word of God, they were religious hypocrites. So Paul wrote in Romans 9, the passage we read as our New Testament reading, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? And he answers it himself, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Salvation comes by the gracious mercy of the sovereign God. You cannot earn your salvation. There are no number of good works that you could ever do that will ever bring you to heaven, my friends. It is impossible to climb your way to God. It is beyond you, as it is beyond me, as it is beyond us all. For God is too high and we are too low, too low in our sinfulness, in our mendacity, in our wickedness, in our covetousness, in our greed, too low in our lives to ever climb our way into the presence of the Almighty. It is never by the works of our hands, but only by the gracious mercy of our God, who gave his Son into this world to die that we might be forgiven and rise to give us new life. It is by trusting him that we are washed clean. Remember Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And how does God wash us like this? 
but by the judgment on sin in his son's death at Calvary and by his resurrection and pouring out of his Holy Spirit, bringing us new birth. Here is God preparing the way for Christmas and Easter at the same time. Here is God preparing the way for you and for me that our scarlet crimson lives can be washed as white as snow. And how does he wash us as white as snow? Why, in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.